Hello, and welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pin Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today I'm delighted to welcome back, even if it's just virtually, one of my favorite authors, Sherry Thomas, whose new book, oh, you're welcome, A Tempest at Sea, is just out. It's part of her Lady Sherlock series. Before we begin, I'd like to let those tuning in know that the Poison Pen does have copies of A Tempest at Sea, as well as the earlier books in the series, and we would be delighted to hold one or more for you or put them in the mail. Just give us a call or go online to the Poison Pen Bookstore and we can connect you with this truly fabulous series of books. Now I'd like to welcome Sherry. Hey John, lovely to see you again as always. It's wonderful to see you. Um, I always like to start with authors by having them tell us a little bit about themselves before they became a writer and you have kind of a fascinating life story. Uh, if, if by fascinating you mean I was an immigrant? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yes, and you can learn. Yeah, it always sounded a little bit boring to me uh, mm -hmm. because I was like, "What? Wait, what's so fascinating about <laughs> my life?" Um, yes, and what were you saying? Yeah, and you also um, English was not your first language, if I remember correctly. You do remember correctly. I think you might hear it also. Um, English is not my first language, and yeah, perhaps the fascinating part was that I learned English. Um, when I was a romance writer exclusively, I used to say I learned English reading romance, and a lot of that was true, um, but I also learned it uh, reading a lot of science fiction uh, oh. when I was a teenager. So I learned uh, English by reading um, romance and science fiction, and uh, as a result, uh, not so much the science fiction part, but um, as a result of reading a lot of historical romance as a teenager, by the time I reached adulthood, I had like the vocabulary of a Victorian old lady. <laughs> Because remember, I didn't, I didn't spend my childhood here. So like, there was a lot of like, like I didn't watch ever watch Sesame Street until I had children of my own. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of children's vocabulary was kind of just missing from, <laughs> from my vocabulary. You were a very advanced child, I guess we'll say. Uh, yes, I guess. Um, so did you always want to be a writer or what were your initial plans when you were growing up in terms of careers? I did think about writing because I love reading and uh, I found stories fascinating. Uh, so I think, you know, like most people who eventually became writers, I tried my hand at it when I was, I don't know, around preaching age. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I immediately found that it was much more difficult than I thought. Like I would have this great idea, like, um, you know, oh, five teenagers go off in space and, mm -hmm. and it's like, they each perform something. One even does a gymnastic routine in space. And then, and then I just didn't know what to do anymore. Like, what else were they going to do in space? No idea. All set up and no story. Mm -hmm. So after a couple of such attempts, I was like, oh, I guess this is not for me. Then I just, so I very quickly decided that and went on um, doing whatever, um, you know, teenagers are supposed to do. And eventually I thought I would, uh, um, study international trade and finance because I wanted to go um, to schools that uh, uh, dealt with international relations because I did speak two languages and I thought, uh, let me take advantage of that. Um, but uh, life intervened. I, instead of going to grad school, I became a stay-at-home mom at a very young age. And one day I read a romance that disagreed with me rather violently. And I suddenly thought, I should do this. I should sit at home, write a romance, make some money from it, and you know, might be interesting because I 
you know, I was 23. I didn't know what to do with my life. And I thought it was as good as any. And every time I look back on it, the older I get, the more astonished I am <laughs> that this was how my life changed. Like it was like a huge turning point in my life and I didn't even know it. Um, and I started writing and then quickly realized, yes, I was right the first time. It's much harder to write um, than, you, than it is to think about writing. And it took me eight years before, um, this was back in the Jurassic era uh, and Jurassic age. So um, it took me eight years before uh, New York offered me a, um, a uh, contract. And I guess since then I've always had a uh, traditional publishing contract. I have always just continued to write. And that first book was a private arrangement that was published? That first book was a private arrangement. It was the first manuscript I wrote, but it wasn't published until six years later when I rewrote it from top to bottom. Good heavens. Even back then when you were writing historical romance, it might be my perception, but you were kind of pushing at the boundaries of the genre because that first book was not your typical historical romance. I attribute it all to blissful ignorance. I didn't know I was doing stuff I wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that first book had a dual timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not realize this was uncommon in romance because I saw it everywhere else. So, so I was like, yeah, um, you know, what am I going to do with this gigantic backstory from the first draft? So, um, so um, yeah, I just did that and they took it. And I didn't, I didn't know it was unusual until the book came out. And then mm -hmm. readers were saying, like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> weird but wonderful, I think, was many of the comments that I heard. Um, so you proceeded to write a number of, histor of historical romances and some young adult novels. What prompted mm -hmm. you to start the Lady Sherlock series? I read Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid and enjoyed it like everybody else did. Um, and I read in Chinese, actually, <laughs> translated into Chinese. Um, and, uh, it, but it was, it was, I think, in 2006, uh, when I first came across the um, Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes books by uh, Laurie R. King, mm -hmm. uh, which is Sherlock Holmes prestige, like, you know, Sherlock Holmes written by other people. Um, that I suddenly thought, like, like my eyes really opened at that first book, and I was like, "Wow, you could write it like this!" And then it was just so cool and so fascinating. And I was like, "I would love to do something like this," but I didn't think I could do it. I didn't consider myself a strong plotter at that stage of my uh, writing life, and uh, and also I just sold in romance. And although I didn't know that much about romance, I knew enough that. You know, if you're solding something, you should continue in for a while. Um, that's a way to build a career. So I was like, oh, let me hang on to this idea for a while. Um, and by the time the um, Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock uh, was airing on a public television, that was when um, I thought to myself, okay, maybe I could try it. It was, you know, six or seven years later, and I was kind of running out of ideas for historical romance. And, and I thought, why not? Let's see if I could do this. Tell us a little bit about the series because you kind of flip the gen the gender um, switch on Sherlock and make him a female. But who are some of the primary characters readers encounter? Uh, 
readers, of course, encounter Sherlock Holmes, uh, the titular lady Sherlock. Uh, this is a gender bent telling of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, um, there is Mrs. Watson. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of, uh, you know, Dr. Watson, there's Mrs. Watson, widow of Dr. Watson. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in, the, in the original canon, uh, the, the woman Sherlock Holmes, I mean, uh, Dr. Watson married, basically never showed her face again after her love story with Dr. Watson. Uh, but uh, this Mrs. Watson had led quite a life. She is, um, she was 11, she's 11 years older than her late husband and uh, had uh, been a, an actress on stage, which um, in the Victorian era was, you know, something scandalous. like kind of like, yeah, it's rather scandalous. Um, and, um, and so she has basically been like a, both a supporter and a mentor to um, Charlotte Holmes. It was she who first saw Charlotte's talent and was like, you know, you should hand out your shingles and, you know, make money off this, monetize your talents. Um, and, and there's also um, Charlotte's sister, um, Livia. And I felt that, um, you know, you, you can't just take a male character and just flip that character into female without like some sort of repercussions, especially in the Victorian era when men and women were supposed to lead completely different lives. And a man would have had a lot more freedom and a lot less concerns about, you know, what kind of person uh, or lives he was supposed to lead. And uh, a woman would have had many more obstacles placed in her way and many fewer opportunities and uh, many more restrictions. And so I, I sort of wanted Charlotte to reflect that. And I also wanted her to be a little more human than the typical um, Sherlock Holmes um, character. I wanted her to be, and the way I thought about humanizing her was to give her a sister uh, to whom she, you know, she's very close, a sister kind of like, half raised her in a sense because they have very absent and inattentive parents. Um, so and I want the sister to be a very normal person who has all the usual anxieties and you know who has the very who's very sensitive to what society expects of her and who is very keenly aware that who she is really inside does not you know jive with that at all and she, she's, she's anxious and concerned about all that whereas charlotte is completely um immune to both public opinion and peer pressure and all those other things so i want them to have grown up together to, for them to have influenced each other and to have you know for um livia to have this rock in charlotte and for charlotte to have learned a bit about humanity via livia um, and of course, there's the love interest, uh, mm -hmm. whose uh, um, initials are A, no, I-A, yes, it was deliberately made that way, um, uh, and that would be Lord Ingram, um, Charlotte's uh, friend from um, yeah, late childhood, early adolescence uh, onward, and uh, they have a rather complicated history, but it's also, they are also like sincerely very good friends who care a lot about each other. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to the latest installment in your series, A Tempest at Sea. Um, it kind of picks up with the premise that everyone thinks Charlotte is no more. That she's right. At the, right. At the end of book six, uh, she uh, faked her own death to kind of get out from uh, Moriarty, to kind of get away from Moriarty's attention. And now she's doing some work for the government and you sent her off to sea. What can you tell us about that? Installment. Uh, it was it was a terrible idea. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I can tell you. 
<laughs> I often start these books with just like, um, with just like, oh, maybe a heist, or oh, maybe you know somebody comes and there's this trouble, and 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 this time I was like, what if they are all shit? Because you know everybody loves um, murder on the Nile. Is it murder mm-hmm. on the Nile or death, death on the Nile? Nile? Death on Nile. Yeah. Um, everybody loves that story. Everybody like kind of a lock, um, lock room um, uh, mystery. And I was like, you know, a ship is perfect. Mm-hmm. And then I would go on to have so much trouble with this gosh darn ship. <laughs> <laughs> because what happens was that um, my stories are already set in a particular time. They're set in the late 1880s. And I know, I know a lot about ships in the 1890s. And you can also find a lot of information about the ships in the 1860s and even up to 1870. But in the 1880s, there seems to be this, this whole giant vacuna in like maritime, you know, history, at least like in what you can dig up online. Mm. Um, so basically in the end, I had to design my own ship. I was hoping to find a ready, like ready-made, um, um, Example. some ready-made naval architecture, but in the end, I had to design my own ship, taking what I know about ships from earlier era and what I know about ships from later era, and like reading newspaper um, articles about you know various ships of that time. Um, so yeah, that took a while. For the longest time, I was writing without knowing how things were situated on the ship, like who is where exactly. And in a normal mystery, that doesn't really matter too much. You know, you just need to know where the where the murder site is, and you know how that was laid out. But in a story like this, you have to know exactly where everyone is on the ship, and in relation to each other. And you have to basically know exactly where everyone was, like during the time frame of the murder. And all those things I find excruciating. I have like a <laughs> hatred of timeline for some reason. I don't like to nail down timeline until the last minute. Mm-hmm. So, oh my goodness, when I finally had to nail down that timeline, it was like, you know, hair pulling out time. How can I make everything fit this timeline? Or how, how can I make this timeline work to fit everything else? So yes, it was a terrible idea, but it, but I, it, it turned out, I like the book a lot yeah. <laughs> when it was all said and done. Um, you even include kind of um, plans of the ship at the beginning of the book. So it does, it does. Uh, exactly where things are. Um, yeah, I think your natural skill as a writer is characterization. I think plotting is probably not something you gravitate towards. So this was probably a challenge because it is definitely a very intricate kind of who's where, when, why, what, and with what weapon kind of thing. Right, exactly. And uh... It's more like I came to plotting later in life. <laughs> it's always like, oh gosh, gotta plot. <laughs> um, you mentioned some of the research you did on the ships, and I think what's fascinating about the Lady Sherlock series is the setting for it, the Victorian era, and how you um, kind of break up some misperceptions some people might have who are not familiar about the Victorian area. There's this idea that it's very staid and that um, men were men and women were women and there was no deviations and that it was just, I guess, as opposed to the Regency period, very dull and staid and um, structured. But you show that people really did live lives that were not the norm in your female characters. Um, You showed that it was a time of innovation, of scientific discovery. It was not just this kind of blip in history. 
I feel like I don't know. Maybe the mid-Victorian era might have been like, but um, not not first America, but the but the late Victorian era. I feel like it's very much analogous to like you know our turn of the century, um, you know, contemporary world in the in the sense that it was it was um, it was a really dynamic time and thing and technology were coming along like super fast and super um like basically they were being um you know fire hose with new technology just as we are right now because um um by the late victorian era they had telephone they had telegraph which means like you know telegraph was called the victorian internet news from anywhere in the world can reach back um, to the UK in about 24 hours or less. And you, if you compare that to the beginning of the century or even to the beginning of Victoria's reign, it's like day and night difference. Um, and uh, by that time you could cross the uh, Atlantic Ocean in six or seven days. Um, you know, you could go, uh, you know, round the world in 80 days was written like even like, I think at least 10 years before the era in which I'm writing. Um, and uh, and so it's, it's and uh, they already had the first women doctors. You know, there were actually even like whole hospitals. Uh, they were close to having whole hospitals staffed by women. Um, and uh, so women could go to medical school. They didn't have lawyers yet, but you know, that was on the way and there was the suffragist movement. So it was like a time of basically like dynamic technological and social changes. Um, so lots of things were happening and it was like, it's a really exciting time. Um, just like it is now. Um, but I think we look back and go, wow, still in some ways can't believe how old fashioned they were, which I believe when people look back on us a hundred years from now, they were going to say exactly the same thing. That's true. Um, another thing that's wonderful about the books is how you slip all these little tidbits of historical research that you found into the storyline, you had mentioned ships. And I think there's a reference to the Great Eastern, if I'm remembering remember right, correctly. Right. Yeah. And I think and I, had, I had to look it up because I thought, is that something you made up or is that a real fact? Yeah. And it's a real no, fact. And I it's was, just I fascinating. I was astonished at how gigantic the Great Eastern was. It was like unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Did that inspire your um, HMS Provence? Provence? HM Provence because HM Provence was a ship that had to fit through the Swiss Canal since they were going in the eastern route. So it was not going to be a gigantic ship uh, in um, anyway. What what I really wanted the uh, the um, what I really was hoping that the um, the HMS Provence would be like would be much more like um, Lucan the 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 Campania and the Lucania, which was from like about eight, not even maybe. 68 years later and they were like proper ocean liners um, but I think the um, we were just slightly ahead of the time when there was an explosion of truly giant luxurious ocean liners leading right up to the Titanic. Yeah. Um, let's uh, switch a things up a little bit and talk about the idea of Sherlock and the appeal of the canon and why you think readers gravitate to these books more than a hundred years after they're written, why they are so appealing to writers, why they appeal to you? Um, I think readers are attracted. Um, I mean, at the time, I think readers were attracted because it was like completely new. It was like nothing mm -hmm. else that had come before. Um, and uh, 
And also uh, Sherlock Holmes and iconoclast, right? He's not your typical Victorian gentleman. Like, you know, he's like, he's a bachelor for one thing. He's not conforming to the, um, the very uh, home and hearth um, ideals of the Victorian times. He's a bachelor, he's, um, he's, he's doing an unusual job, a job that would probably like get him strange looks in his own, um, in his own like social circle because um, yeah. it, it is general consensus that he came from either the upper gentry or the lower aristocracy, or like the same, same, same stratum yeah. that um, Charlotte Holmes family um, at. Um, so he's basically like a rule breaker and he's like um, interesting in various ways. And he was also just so gosh darn good at what he did that you, know, you cannot help but be fascinated by the character. And people, people want to, when you, when you want to um, read, you like that escape of reading people who are just like so good at what they're doing and it just like sweep everything out of the way. Um, and I think for me, the personal fascination is actually less with the canon as with the uh, pastiche. Like my favorite Sherlock Holmes works tend not to be the original canon stories, but more what other people have done with this character, with his characteristics and with the, his, the, his way of detecting. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, I, I find that to be fascinating how, how each update brings its own um, innovation and originality and building on this, you know, a foundation like other people have um, built before. That's what fascinates me, the retelling and the retelling for your own time and retelling with your own twist of things. Yes, um, the Sherlock character, this is a guess on my part, correct me if I'm wrong, make it easier for you as a writer because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle left a lot blank about his life. You can fill in details, you can you can take the character in different directions. It's not, I think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was more interested in kind of the puzzle, the cleverness of that and solving that. So it, it lets you take the character and kind of ring new changes on it. Yeah, precisely. I mean, there's so much about Sherlock Holmes's life um, that we don't know. We don't know his parents' name. I mean, do we? Or like, I, I'm not sure we do. Um, and we, we don't even know, like, you know, um, where he went to school. Um, how We didn't know how old he was at the time he and Watson met. Um, so uh, we don't know, basically, we don't know anything um, biographical about him, which is um, what, uh, um, like, the 7% solution, um, which is a famous Sherlock Holmes retelling published in the, either, either in the late 70s or early mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah. And uh, which I read about the same time I started reading the original canon. Um, and that fascinated me um, even as a like a 12 year old because I was like, oh, so here in the original books, his, his you know, his ingesting of, you know, like he was just shooting himself up with cocaine. And that's just like, well, you know, not, no big deal. And in the 7% solution, it is like, oh, he was missing for three years because he was in rehab. <laughs> yeah in Switzerland or something like that. So it's like, I, 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 even as a very young kid, I loved what was done to like flesh out his biography. Well, I think what you've done that's also rather smart with Charlotte is um, the original Sherlock Holmes, he can indulge in cocaine because he has an independent income. He doesn't have to worry about a job on a day-to-day -day level, but Charlotte, this is this is something that she relies on to support herself and her family. So she exactly. has to have 
um, other forms of um, downtime, I guess. Or <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like a vice that is not going to like you That's know it. conquer out on the couch. <laughs> yes. How did you come up with giving her? Um, we'll call it an addiction to sweets, so to speak. Yeah, like a little sugar addiction. I don't know. It's it's possibly because the author herself uh, very much <laughs> enjoys. Uh, you know, a slice of cake from time to, and I used to have this tradition of like, I stopped because uh, it could get too much. Uh, like when I used to have one deadline a year, I would like have it, like actually buy a cake for my deadline and mm. basically like replace one or two of my meals a day with just this cake. Like it's like a proper four layer, like maybe 10 inch cake that would take up half of one shelf of my, you know, fridge. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, but uh, I had to give that up when I like kept having to have deadlines because my drafts keep not working out. Um, and, uh, and so I was like, what should she be obsessed with? How about some cake? Let her have all the cake that I can't have. <laughs> That's great. But occasionally she also does have to watch out of it because I like did not want to make her the kind of woman who just eats all the cake in the world and like look exactly the same because nobody does. Yeah, no, she has to, she has her own gauge of the number of chins as to when she needs to stop <laughs> yeah, and go for yeah, like, Or not just stop, just like cut down a little bit, like not indulge as much as she would like to. Let's talk a little bit about Moriarty um, and your take on this character, because I think you're very perceptive in, at least for your books, he, um, Moriarty needs to be more of a presence. He needs to be part of the series, whereas for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he was more kind of on the sidelines, so to speak. Yeah, and just like really, really brought out when he needed to kill off, um, kill off uh, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, Holmes. right? Uh, like uh, I, I, I read that somewhere that uh, Moriarty only made like an appearance in three or at most four of um, of the original canon stories, and there were a ton of them. Mm -hmm. But for you, Moriarty so, is more important in your series. You want to develop him as a kind of an, an well, um, antagonist. It's because it's because also um, it's it. I'm also reacting to the pop culture uptake updates, like the Sherlock right. Holmes pastiche. Because in okay. the pastiche, uh, Moriarty has become this uh, arch enemy to Sherlock Holmes. So, and I was like, if you write a, a long series, it might not be bad to have an arch enemy um, because, you know, that give you uh, your antagonist, your protagonist needs some sort of like even po more powerful antagonist to have something to struggle against. Uh, so yes, um, like I have, I have, and, and also like, I always complain about how uh, um, the BBC Sherlock kind of went downhill after they got rid of their Moriarty in, mm -hmm. in an episode I still fail to understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I was like, okay, I'm gonna keep mine around for a little longer. So he'll like provide a foil to Charlotte for a little longer. But then it's a trick of like not making everything Moriarty related. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, let's talk a little bit about your writing process because I find that fascinating, at least as a non-writer. Um, you had had a quote that you'd given someone else and I'll read it. You said, writing a story is not like chiseling in marble. One mistake in your statue would be forever without an arm. It is much more like making pottery from clay. You can crunch the whole thing down and restart and you can adjust as you go. 
correct. That's correct. I always say like words are the most abundant substance in the universe. <laughs> Mm, yeah. No matter how much you throw out, there's still like an endless supply of them where they came from. Um, so yes, that's that is my view. I view um, I view the um, story as a very malleable thing, mm. and I do not um, I am not particularly attached to my words. I am much more interested in whether this execution of a story is any good. Um, if if I'm not taking the story in the right direction, or if I'm just not like. Um, executing the storyline the way it deserves it. Like I will throw all the words out and restart. And uh, in the end, I think it's just the story, the core idea that comes. Um, if you can, if you can, if you can manage to get the core idea of the story across properly, then that's good. But um, still, I have to say, um, at this like, the Lady Sherlock books have been much less terrible to write than some of my earlier romances when I was still learning how to, you know, when I had no idea what story structure was and was just like, you know, basically like stumbling around in the dark. Uh, um, so the earlier writing has really, an earlier trial by fires uh, has really been like helped a lot in terms of writing these Lady Sherlock books eventually. That's great. Um, another thing that you had said or kind of paraphrased, and I've heard other writers say it, is that there are only so many plots in fiction. The trick as a writer is characters. And I think that's true for your books, especially. It is. I, I feel like you can, you can always... Um, I am still astonished by um, twists and turns. You know, um, I feel like there's some twists and turns that are always good, no matter what. Um, like the, the big example being um, Luke, uh, I am your father. When Darth Vader did it in, you know, um, original, um, like in, um, what was it? The Empire Strikes Back. It was like a shocking moment. And 20 some years later, in, in one of the Toy Stories, you know, in one of the Toy Stories, <laughs> I think some intergalactic evil lord said to um, Buzz Lightyear, no, Buzz, I am your father. <laughs> we, like, I just, like, laughed my head off and, again, was astonished. You know, you know, some plot twists are always good. And they are good because you're invested in the characters. <laughs> They're good because you're invested in the character. You are... Um, you're like concerned about what happens to them and you are um, worried about their emotional state. And that is when twists and plot developments work because they are like impacting people you care about. So as a writer, you have to know your characters in order to make the plot work. Yes, very much so. And you have to like, um, like mystery is not necessarily a character driven. Uh, but then it also is very much a character driven because it is the characters that commit murders and, you know, commit cover ups and stuff like that. So in a sense, it is plot driven, but in a sense, it's also very, very much character driven. Um, another thing that I find fascinating about writers is they're all individual. It's what I like to call their voice or the way they tell the story. Um, you have said that your voice did not really come to you until you'd written a million words, and then you recognized your literary voice. How would you describe your writing, your literary voice, to someone who hasn't read you? Huh, interesting. Um, I think 
my voice is not altogether the same when I write um, historical and when I write contemporary. Um, I think when I write historical, and that is most of my work has been some sort of, um, it is it is a slightly arch voice. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, um, but it's also like, I think underneath that is a, it is funny because I've written, especially when I was writing romance, I used to, you know, people used to call me a tearjerker. <laughs> like I wrote yeah. a lot of tearjerkers. <laughs> yeah, um, but I feel like it's, it's, I think it comes out more in the Lady Sherlock books. It's a humorous voice mm -hmm. in the sense that um, I personally find a lot of things amusing. So that, um, and I feel like I am kindly um, disposed to most people, most small biases, most human um, foibles. foibles that are, yeah. yeah, human foibles that don't really hurt other people. That's like, you know, things that fall, fall short of true evil. I'm like, or, or true unkindness, I am kind of like kindly um, disposed toward it. Um, and uh, and I think that comes across, like it, there's a certain uh, a certain humor and a certain tolerance and, uh, you know, it's just like, um, yeah, I feel like my, um, my, my mystery voice is more like me than my uh, romance voice. I think both your mysteries and your romances also share, there's kind of a luxurious quality to the writing. There's a richness to it that oh, you sometimes you. don't find in other um, books. And also, you know, I could be wrong, and this just could be my take, but I think you have a real love just for language. And for I words. do, I very much do. And, and when I, um, I mean, um, readers may read a book only once, but mm -hmm. the writers, they have to read it multiple times in all the iterations of revisions and also like later the more technical stages of, you know, copy edits and uh, page proofs. Um, so I like, I feel like I would be bored reading uh, my own book if like there's not some a little bit true to the prose. So mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. almost as much for my own sake as it is for anything else to have like, that little texture to the prose. That's a great way of putting it. Um, let's take another turn and talk about you a little bit as a reader, because I know over the years you've read many different things. Um, the last time we had a chance to talk, you were kind of indulging, and I'm going to get the, I won't even attempt the Chinese words for it, but they were like Chinese martial arts type novels. Oh, the, we were, I, I was mostly reading web novels, Chinese web novels. Ah, yes, okay. I have, uh, I have uh, since uh, kind of like made a tentative return to a reading in the English language. <laughs> <laughs> Have you found any particular books that you loved over the last years or so, or is there something you're looking forward to as a reader? Uh, the book I really loved was actually a fanfic that my friend recommended. It is um, this Harry Potter fanfic that is actually like a mashup between Harry Potter and uh, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, if you can believe it. Mm, okay. So basically, postulates that um, you know the, the the good the good wizards lost the war, mm -hmm. and now uh, Voldemort, who is in charge, is you know um, there's like problem with magical fertility, and so he's like matching uh, captured uh, witches from the from Harry Potter side to like his Death Eaters, and uh, so basically it's it's like a, it's a, it's a 
Hermione uh, Granger and Draco Malfoy uh, coupling. And, uh, and I was like, I was like, I hadn't read or thought much about Harry Potter for ages, but um, this book was so good uh, in a sense, it was like, it's such a, it's a war, it's a story about war. It's a love story, definitely, but it's also a story about war. And it's one of the best stories about war I've ever uh, read. Although that may not be saying much because I don't choose to read stories about war normally, but this was um, a phenomenal piece of writing. It's called Manacled and it's by uh, Selin Yu, if anybody's interested. Uh, and I've also been reading, um, I've also been reading, actually recommended by my editor. I've been reading the, um, um, you guys must have this in your book, uh, in your bookstore because they've been selling uh, very well lately. I've also been reading the Thursday Murder Club. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's very interesting to, um, then you realize how unusual it is to have older people as protagonists in stories. Um, and, uh, and then I've also just been like reading a lot of things having to do with food anthropology. <laughs> which is like one of my favorite things to read about. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Is there a particular, I, I guess, is that like the history of food or what exactly? It's, it's, it's yeah, it's history and social history of food. It's more like, oh. uh, um, so for example, there will be, uh, you might be talking about, you might just be taking, taking Twinkie and breaking oh. down each ingredient of the Twinkie. So that might be a contemporary one. And you might get a historical one, such as, you know, they, they, uh, they take a social history of like uh, a drink or something like that, how it developed and what, you know. Uh, and I've also read a social history of um, fabrics. So that was also fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. It, um, if I remember correctly, you also at some point in the previous years discovered Dorothy Dunnett. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. Uh, I read the first book and it was an astonishing book, uh, but I actually could not, the, but I, she has passed out, hasn't she? Mm, I think so, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're, yeah, you're, I, 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 I hate to speak, I, I hate to speak ill of anything because her books are astonishing, but her prose, I find very, very dense. And maybe, oh. I, I'm not sure how, because I think maybe some people might find my prose dense, but I like, I find her prose dance, I find it like hard to get through. Um, like mm -hmm. it, it's like, it's a real exercise in my brain to actually understand what each sentence is saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, in addition to, I think most of your books are traditionally published. You did, did you publish at least one book yourself or maybe one? I have, yeah, I have actually published uh, a couple of novel length, uh, uh, books and a few short stories on my own. Yes, self-published, yes. What was that experience like for you? Because you pretty much have dealt with traditional publishers. Um, it's like, um, it's very interesting in the sense that because I am not a um, self-publisher and I am not very good at it. So mm -hmm. these books tend to be like, you know, just thrown, thrown out, like, it's like tossing things into the sea of books out there and they just promptly disappear. <laughs> um, unless people like, like just accidentally come across them, but these tend to be my favorite books oh. because they're not under contract. And if you know me, you know, I'm not like the most industrious of people. <laughs> I like to do nothing. I really like doing nothing. Um, so, um, so for me to like get off my behind or like, 
sit on my behind and write these books for which nobody has promised me anything and for which I'm not obliged to handing a draft to anyone. Um, they are like truly labors of love. Like they are there because I really want to write them. So, so my self-published ones are often my favorite books, like uh, my contemporary romance, the one single contemporary romance I wrote, um, the prequel to uh, My Beautiful Enemy. Um, uh, there's one called... Um, the Heart of the Universe, which is a uh, which is a science fiction romance. Those are all like books really dear near to my heart. Yeah. And uh, commercially, I don't think they did much at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure readers love them anyway. Um, before we run out of time, can you, um, if you're willing to, can you tell us what's next for you as a writer, or if you'd prefer yes, to keep that yes. secret? Um, uh, what's coming up next for me is. Uh, two more Lady Sherlock books. We just okay. recently signed uh, for books eight and nine. And there is another book that uh, in, in, the, um, in the contract, I'm not sure what I'm at liberty to discuss it because I haven't asked my publisher. Um, like at first I thought they were going to offer me to do another historical romance and I was rather looking forward to it, but they did not give me that book. They offered me a different book. So um, it will be something new. Um, it will be something interesting. But um, yes, there will be two more, um, definitely two more, uh, at least two more Lady Sherlock books. And there will be this new thing in the next couple of years um, wow. for which I am doing research now and for which I am wondering, like, why me? <laughs> Frankly. <laughs> Well, that's so mysterious. Like, 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 what is it about me that make me you make my publisher think I should be writing this? Like, okay, but you know, I have never refused money when it comes to just in like if you want me to write something, offer me sufficient amount of money and I will write it. That's a very pragmatic <laughs> approach. <laughs> and how can readers learn more about um, you and your books? You have a website. Are you on social media? Yes, I have two websites. I am. You can find me at um, sherrythomas.com, or you can find uh, the Lady Sherlock books at uh, ladysherlockbooks.com. Uh, they have a site devoted to them, um, and uh, you can find me. Um, I am Sherry Thomas on on Twitter, uh, author Sherry Thomas on Facebook, and I think writer Sherry Thomas on Instagram. And I'm not very good at social media, so don't expect a whole lot of fun or engaging stuff from me. Um, it's usually there when I feel like I must post something, lest everybody think I have, you know, <laughs> something <laughs> happened to me. No longer with <laughs> us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't believe how quickly our time has flown by. It's just been an absolute delight having Sherry Thomas here yeah, talking about so her new Lady Sherlock book. Always. Yes. Uh, Thank I you so much for having me. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. A hundred percent of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.